Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode the story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. Tax season is approaching, bringing potential extra cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada you don't take yada yada in life don't take yada yada from your wireless provider metro by t-mobile has no contracts no credit checks no surprises and nada yada yada stop by one of over six thousand metro stores nationwide this episode is brought to you by alienware during dell tech fest score game-changing innovations with limited time deals on select next-gen alienware gaming tech new dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the alienware m18 laptop powered by an intel core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals liquid cooling three-dimensional audio with dolby atmos and impressive overclocking potential your dream setup amazing prices and free shipping await you for a limited time only at alienware dot com slash deals that's alienware.com slash deals hey sarah i love that spring break vlog you posted on zigazoo omg you watched it yeah it was so cool i think you're so talented social media is only positive with zigazoo the world's largest and safest social media network for kids in zigazoo all community members are verified kids like yours and all content is fully human moderated Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. We're talking big business today. Today's episode is a little bit different because it's about not one, but multiple things that could rightly be called conspiracies taking place in multiple companies in multiple countries across the planet. And while these conspiracies may not be connected by design, they do share remarkable commonalities. They're almost a genre of their own. And so maybe the best way for us to begin today's episode is to ask, why do CEOs make so much money? It's like it's a, it's a question the three of us have talked a little bit about off air. You know, we we like many other employees in large in large corporations over the years uh, sometimes sit around, you know, the, the proverbial water cooler or hanging out at a happy hour. And we say stuff like, huh, I wonder how much our bosses make. Remember those conversations, guys? Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, I don't want to put us in a rough spot this early on, but yes, yeah, just just the. Just to establish that um, fellow conspiracy realists, uh, we think a lot of people have had those conversations, and these conversations have accelerated, especially in the recent years, as CEOs especially continue to do very well during the pandemic, even as companies were floundering and there were hundreds of thousands of people being laid off or furloughed. But Let's let's break it down. Let's talk turkey. Let's talk about the thing so many employees are afraid to talk about and so many employers would rather no one discuss. Here are the facts. Inflation. The average worker. It's uh <laughs> it's not looking good. It's I would say let me know if you agree with this cuz I would say it has long been common knowledge that the average value of a person's labor in the US is going down. And has been for some time. And a lot of it's due to inflation. Yeah, because average salaries have kind of stagnated. You you can see this represented in graphs across the Internet from very intelligent people who've been keeping track of this stuff. And you can just see that on average, salaries of working people have stagnated and inflation has increased in that same time. So as inflation goes up, salaries stagnate. You can't afford as much stuff. You just can't. Yeah. Like uh, for a weird made up example, let's say you make $15 an hour and you always go to the same place for lunch. You get a sub sandwich because you've never heard of quesadillas and your local sub place one day uh, due to what they describe as increasing cost of supplies. They've raised the price on every submarine sandwich by a couple of bucks. You know what I mean? It's not like $20 anymore, but it's it used to be five and now it's $7. And then let's say every place you could ever buy food from does the same thing. And then let's say every business you would ever buy anything from starts doing the same thing because of the same rationale. We see this in the world of automobiles. We see this in the world of consumer electronics, construction supplies, you name it. What this means is that if you are still making that $15 an hour, now your $15 is worth less and less. And this is a phenomenon that is well-established. It's not up for debate. It is proven throughout time. Uh, inflation is real. And this phenomenon has accelerated at an insane rate. And not to start off on bad news, but it is almost certainly going to get worse before it gets better. Oh, yeah. And inflation itself is a fascinating thing to delve into. And I'm, you know, I'm not an econ major. I don't I didn't take many econ classes. I don't know much about it. But just getting kind of a surface level understanding of inflation for this episode. There's some weird stuff that goes on in there. Weird stuff that's like across the board. Uh, effects that can occur in a nation or globally or in a region. And it's weird stuff with psychology, similar to how stock markets function, where when people like start thinking inflation is going up, then they get a, a they ask for a small raise, which then triggers other things. And like, it's this strange cycle that I can't fully wrap my head around. Um, and that, you know, that the way I described right there is not exactly how inflation works overall but it's like one of those weird things it's it's more complicated than i understood it's also not always bad right it's a product of other things too like 
economic growth and in the same way that like um, publicly traded companies are expected by their stockholders to show year over year growth no matter what, right? I mm-hmm. mean, I just want to understand a little bit more. Um, does inflation ever go down? Yeah, it can in the process known as deflation. Deflation. Uh, <laughs> but does it take like an economic event? I mean, it takes something palpable for that to happen. Does it, or it's, it's, is it like all determined by the Fed and like, you know, controllable um, parameters? Or is it stuff that's sort of like out of the control of, of anyone in power? It's weird because, you know, it reminds me sometimes of – social dynamics in escape rooms. And by escape rooms, I'm referring to the recreational thing where you and a group of people uh, that you're hopefully still friends with at the end have to cooperate to achieve a certain goal, to get out of the escape room. The global economy is a lot like that. If you've ever been in an escape room and you're like, what is wrong? Why aren't these people listening to each other? That's kind of what happens. Uh, Deflation is just a general decline in goods and services and the Fed here, the U.S. Federal Reserve uh, here in the United States is very aware of these things. And they, they try to keep a balance. And you see you see this most often announced in things like the Fed is raising or cutting the interest rate. So the Fed can play a big role in in maintaining this balance, this precarious balance, right? But they are not the only factor. And honestly, economists still argue over what the the chief factors are. And you'll see economists arguing uh, for contradictory things. People saying inflation is actually great in the long term. I think your um, escape room metaphor is is really appropriate because oftentimes, or at least the one time I did an escape room, the person that was the most pushy and the most like leader like was dead wrong about everything. (laughs) (laughs) But Uh. throwing that weight around and having that flex to the point where other people kind of fell in line, even though what they were proposing was not in the best interest of literally anybody. Ooh, that really applies to this entire episode. Um, just really quickly on the inflation thing, the way I was thinking about it, and any economists out there listening, please correct me, but if there's something like subsidies that get involved, like a government starts uh, paying money for certain, you know, maybe food items or uh, construction grain items. Or like ethanol, maybe. Or, or wood like or whatever that. it is. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the government starts injecting money into a sector like that, that sector can then perhaps charge a little bit less for whatever that thing is so that the person at the end, you, me paying for it can pay a little less. But isn't that counter to the idea of the free market? Like if you're manipulating these factors, like isn't, aren't things supposed to succeed or fail on their own merit without intervention of that kind? Well, it's funny because the free market itself is somewhat of a contradiction in terms. Uh, and this is not meant to be a hot take. It's just pay attention to the, uh, the big, Poobahs of the world, when they're talking about a free market, they're talking about a market that they have undue control over. So it's still not free. It's just them driving instead of, you know, um, a governmental institution. That's what like what that's what the Koch brothers mean when they say free market. And this is not to say that there are people who are big proponents of that. Like, it's not to say there are not libertarians who are arguing in good faith and genuinely believe that all things being equal the invisible hand, as it is, uh, would ultimately bring that kind of balance that people are always striving for. Uh, also, 
The Invisible Hand is not mentioned near as often in that book as people might think. Uh, so, so when you hear somebody talking about the invisible hand, make sure they actually read Adam Smith, just a pro tip there. But the, um, reason we're talking about this stuff, the reason we're talking about this is not to create a snooze fest. It's to give everyone the lay of the land on a very important problem. If you check out something called the consumer price index, uh, you will see some troubling trends. The consumer price index is an inflation gauge. It goes across dozens of items like the old milk and bread measurement from various economists. And according to them, it rose 7% inflation overall, just across the span of a year. Why does that matter? That's the fastest rate of rising inflation since 1982 the fastest rate in almost 40 years. And, you know, your boss, if you work at most companies, is aware of this. And some businesses try to offset this. Like you or one of your friends or family member might have a job that gives them like a cost of living or merit increase every year. And often it's something kind of small, right? It's like a percentage, you know, like, oh, inflation's 2%. So we'll give everyone a 3% raise. Yeah, and, and we've actually experienced that before uh, in working for the company prior to this. We've seen that kind of 3% year-over-year raise, which is just kind of standard, as you said. And if you're interested in researching more into that consumer price index on your own, look up something called the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, or PCE. It's just another one of those uh, measurements that you can look at that, that many economists look at to kind of check out how things are going. And, and these economists, by the way, are doing great work. Uh, and true, yes, some, some disciples of what's called the dismal science do very much have an agenda, but they are still, you know, they're still working to conduct science here. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking because inflation can be incredibly challenging. Just inflation on its own can be, um, be a huge problem for a lot of individuals and households, but this is not a one-on-one -on -one fight. Inflation brings some goons to the bar fight of having enough money to be alive in America. Things like global trade competition, shout out NAFTA, for instance, driving down the value of traditional manufacturing jobs, or things like we've talked about at length, increased automation. That means it's rendered some humans increasingly obsolete in some fields of employment. Uh, civilization is going through a John Henry moment. And the more I think about that, the more accurate it is. But on the other side, you know, th this is what we mean when we say the, the wage gap. On the other side, we've got people at the top, the corporate executives, right? All those acronyms, CEO, CFO, COO, drop the beat. If we look at the other side of the coin, or the other side of the paycheck, we know that, pardon my French, Things are difficult for a lot of rank-and-file employees, your faithful correspondents included, but life is pretty f dope on the other side of the wealth gap. You know, like, CEOs aren't usually hurting for money. And to be honest, I think a lot of people, for a long time, myself included, didn't really know what a CEO did, right? Their chief, their executive, their officers, those are just three words slapped together into an acronym. They make the decisions, right? They're the deciders. That's all I know. Yeah, they're the boss boss. They're the bosses of the bosses. Um, they 
set the culture of the company in many ways. They set the goals of the company and they are responsible for meeting those goals because they are responsible directly in a publicly traded company to the shareholders. Uh, And oftentimes they are also, you know, the chairman of the board uh, of their, you know, governing body for the company too. Yeah, yeah. The bosses, bosses. I love that. I love that we phrase it that way because that is accurate. Uh, we're we're in no way being simplistic here. The CEO is pretty often the main liaison between the corporation and its operations overall to the board of directors. So the board of directors uh, are the are the people who make those goals that the CEO follows, right? Because the CEO, despite being the bosses of bosses, kind of have bosses of their own. And often the rank and file employees are not going to meet the board of directors. These these might be shareholders. They might be unaffiliated and just paid to be on the board. Uh, they might be or working they may pro- own some stock. Mm-hmm. Right. Or they may own a specific class of stock. Exactly. Because there's, um, you know, voting class of stock and then there's uh-huh. like sort of non-voting or silent class. I'm not sure exactly what the terms are, but if we learned anything from uh, Succession, we learned from the episode with Adrian Brody where he plays kind of like a silent partner in um, Royco or, or Waystar Royco. It's because the amount that he owns is beneath the threshold of uh, a, a number that would then have to be publicly reported. But it's enough that he can flex on, you know, Logan and Kendall and make them squirm because he owns enough to uh, basically wrest uh, control, family control away from the shareholders who are the actual family uh, in this family owned company. And that can be a very powerful position to be in. But yeah, we don't know who that person is. Right. And that really happens. That is that is based in factual events or based upon factual events. CEOs are also going to have executives under them as well, like COOs, CFOs. And then sometimes there will be someone who holds the title of president, either president of a division or president of the company overall. That name is a little misleading, you know, like uh, sometimes in, in the um, – I believe it's U.S. astronautics, Uh, a flight crew will have a captain and they'll have someone called a pilot. And really, the captain is like the main pilot and also just in charge overall. Don't you often, though, see president slash CEOs? Yes. In in frequently uh, in smaller companies, you'll see one person fulfilling both roles or sometimes when there's a CEO who's like a cult of personality right? And they're kind of a celebrity in their own right, then they'll have both of those positions. And then sometimes, honestly, it's a personality thing. They're just control freaks and they don't want to delegate certain decisions. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's, it's kind of the lay of the land. And look, there's no, we're not dunking on him too hard just yet. There is no denying this can be a very stressful job. If you have met a CEO, if you've worked with CEOs, if you yourself are a CEO, then you know that you don't really have off time. You're sort of always on call, right? And if someone from the board wants to talk to you and it's 3 a.m. where you're at, you probably still have to answer the phone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We know some of this from personal experience. I mean, even just being in the orbit of a CEO, you know, you still are held to that same standard or even being in the orbit of someone in the orbit of the CEO. All that stuff kind of trickles down the higher uh, in the ranks that you get where, yeah, off time is sort of a, a laugh. And so now what do they get for it? 
Yes, they get prestige. Yes, they have power. And yes, they are at the, the helm of the ship, as it were. But they also get paid. And it's surprising. Most of the polls that I found in this and in other research indicate that the average person in the U.S. vastly underestimates just how wide the wealth gap has become. Uh, we're going to give you a few statistics not to be overly dramatic, you might want to brace yourself, sit down, you know, get a drink if you're so inclined. We want to introduce you to something called the Economic Policy Institute. The Economic Policy Institute estimates that since 1978, the typical worker compensation has risen about 18%. Not bad, good hustle. For comparison, compensation for CEOs has grown 1000 322% over that same period. Nice. Didn't even know you could have a percent like that. It feels like a Wonka number to me. I thought it stopped at 100. I'm confused. (laughs) I'm bad at mathing. Uh, Well, I think they're counting on most of us to not be super into math. But yeah, 1,322%. You can slice that a couple of different ways uh, because... CEOs are not paid the way that, you know, your average hourly worker is. And we'll get into that. That's a big part of today's episode. But there was another statistic that we wanted to share from the IPS or Institute for Policy Studies. They found that if you look at S&P 500 companies, 80% pay their CEO more than 100 times what they pay their average worker. What does this mean? That means if you're the average employee at one of these places, you have to work for one century 100 years at these companies to earn what your CEO makes in one year. Seems doable. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that's just what that's what that makes me do. <laughs> I know it does. It does. It's staggering uh, is what it is. And just for a little perspective, in 2020, CEOs overall were making 351 times as much as a typical employee um, compared to that 2019 policy studies report um, talking about the S&P 500 companies where the CEOs were making over 100 times. Um, the numbers get even more bleak when you look at the bigger picture and you pull back and look at all companies. Uh, in 1989, for reference, uh, that was a ratio of 61 to 1. So 61 times. So let's do let's do a little imagineering, everybody. Ooh. What do you say? Uh, maybe that's trademarked by Disney. I'm not sure. Sorry. Sorry, Disney. Let's enter uh, the realm of pure imagination. <laughs> let's that. do it. Let's go through the tunnel. Uh, it's Let's imagine it's 2020. You're a CEO. Congratulations. You did it. Man. Woo. Uh, let's say you were the CEO of one of the top 350 companies, firms, conglomerates, whatever. Uh, one of the top. You'd be making an average of $24.2 million a year. Now, that doesn't mean $24.2 million gets inserted into your checking account immediately every, you know, every other week you get paid or every month, whatever. Uh, That means that you do get a significant amount of money in your bank account as a check, but you, you don't get all that money. Most of that is tied up in the company itself, usually in equity, the the worth of the company, stocks, stock options, things like that. I would say it's a vast majority of the money that you get compensated is in the stock. Yeah, nowadays. It's also good for loyalty, right? In theory. Mm-hmm. 
we know the economic chaos of the past few years affected everybody in one way or another. But here's the thing, and it's not often uh, reported as widely as we think it should be. Not everyone was affected adversely, folks. A lot of CEOs, a lot of executive suite people had gangbuster years, even as their own companies were burning down. Boeing uh, lost $12 billion and they laid off like around 30,000 employees. In the same year, their CEO made $21.1 million. Hilton Hotel gave up almost 25% of its corporate staff. They lost $720 million. And again, in the same year, they gave their CEO $55.9 million, all in the same year. It seems counterintuitive. So we have to ask, what gives? You know what I mean? Like a lot of employees who have a bonus structure have that bonus structure based on the overall company performance. So if your company isn't doing well, then you are not getting that extra little payoff at the end of the fiscal year. Why are CEOs different? Why do they make so much money? What does this tell us about the wealth gap? And where does this lead us in the future? We're going to pause for word from our sponsors, double check to make sure we're not fired, and dive in. From football playoffs to basketball madness, TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd, cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at Amazon.com. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
the all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Here's where it gets crazy. So we asked a series of questions, and we're going to have some a simple answer at the end, and we're going to start with a simple answer now. First, it doesn't look pretty. Uh, I, I suggest we take these questions one by one because we got to play a little bit of devil's advocate. Uh, there's there's a lot of literature out there, videos, interviews, documentaries, think pieces that support the idea for the acceleration of CEO income. And they have, you know, they, they often have a similar rationale, wouldn't you say? I think so. Um, one of them is the argument that these CEOs and the super rich in general, we could even take it outside of CEOs, just the idea of like the, the one, the top, you know, 1% or whatever. Um, they have paved the way for the rest of us by testing things like cell phones, you know, that at one point cost like a thousand dollars and were, you know, out of the reach of the average American or average, you know, human being, um, other, other things, you know, uh, computers, for example, uh, camcorders, whatever. I'm, I'm exclusively talking about technology, but the idea that if it wasn't for them, those things would not have become, uh, viable and therefore become affordable and trickled down to the rest of us. So that's, that's one of the arguments. And also just the idea that, you know, the, they're that free market concept again, which you're right, is really deceptive and misleading um, that it's a self-regulating system that uh, who are we to say that these CEOs aren't providing a service that is commensurate with the amount of money that they are paying and that society values what they're putting out into the world uh, at a level that is appropriate for the amount of money they're getting paid. It's interesting. You can watch a video of uh, Goldman Sachs CEO Larry Blank. Fiend, fine. I don't know how to say his name. Sorry, I don't. I don't know him. But you can watch a video of him making this argument uh, and making a sports analogy of the absolute best of the best end up in the NFL or the NBA. You know, through talent and a certain amount of luck. He sees CEOs as the same kind of thing. Like it's it's worth paying some star athlete a ridiculous amount of money because it's going to get people to watch. Your thing, it's going to make you money. It's worth paying, you know, some CEO, whether because of previous experience or because of, you know, like you said, the nepotism, the connections that are already existing within a, a an industry or something. It's worth valuable. paying them. Yeah, it's worth paying them a ton of money. Yeah, you got to pay LeBron more, right? It's an investment in yeah. the team. And at first blush, you know, that's that's very valid. That's tough to argue with, right? Because then if you follow that train of thought, the idea is that ultimately it's better for the company overall, meaning it's better for the employees, all of them, for there to be a, a Jordan at the very top. Well, and there, it, talent, and it, there's something to be said about experience, right? I mean, like um, ha having wisdom in a field and in running a business. It's the same kind of requirements that you have to theoretically elect a president, right? 
uh, you understand the field, how it functions. So when something, when there's a cog that breaks, you, you understand how to fix it. And unfortunately, these proven track records of meeting goals, or in the worst case scenario, weathering hard times to keep a company going, uh, the, meeting these goals can sometimes spell disaster for other employees. Uh, I found a statement from Senator Elizabeth Warren. She puts it pretty bluntly when she said, quote, many of these CEOs have improved profitability by laying off workers, a tiny handful of people who have shimmied all the way up to the top of the greasy pole, get all the rewards while everyone else gets left behind. I don't know where greasy pole came from, but that's a that's an evocative image. Uh, and this isn't always true, of course, and whether or not you believe with you jibe with Senator Warren's other political views. She's not making this up. She's not just freestyling here like there. This is a proven thing. And there's another criticism of that rationale, even though, yeah, I agree it, it can be valid. If CEO compensation is indeed tied to performance, why do CEOs still make bank when companies don't meet those goals, when they don't perform well? Mm. <laughs> I don't know. It feels like it feels like I don't know. It feels like a move, doesn't it? There's a move there that maybe I'm just not seeing. Yeah. And I, I think we may get close to uh, at least demystifying that a bit today. Uh, it, it can make the whole thing sound like a PR move. This is something we we're talking about off air before we started recording. You'll hear these, you'll hear these stories that are largely exceptions to the rule where you'll say there'll be a big tech company, right? Like take Alphabet. Uh, Alphabet, the average employee, let's say they make a little over $240,000 a year. Pretty great. Not bad. But the CEO has a salary of like $1 and has had that for a while. That sounds cool. It sounds like someone is saying, I don't need the money. I am going to be here because I believe in what we're doing as an enterprise. But that's not the way they get paid. As you pointed out, Matt, they're not talking about the stock options they're getting, which in some cases absolutely dwarf any imagined salary. And the New York Times talked about this too in a pretty in a pretty fantastic article that I highly recommend. It's called simply "Are CEOs Paid Too Much?" This is an op-ed by Callie Holterman, and uh, it's it's worth a read if you want to get the lay of the land. But uh, we we pulled a quote that I think sums up the situation, the discrepancy in in CEO pay, the way CEOs are paid versus the way employees are paid. In some cases, CEOs took less than they were entitled to. Most top executives receive the bulk of their pay in shares, which may decrease in value and often vest over several years. And at many companies, the stock price was up despite the turbulence in the economy and regardless of whether the company was profitable. Um, if I could just add something really quickly, too. These CEOs are nine times out of ten, maybe ten times out of ten. People that don't necessarily need the paycheck, they're investment wizards already, and they are parlaying these shares into their investment portfolios uh, that are already quite fat. Um, and we'll get into what they do with that in a little bit. But um, wouldn't you agree that the playing field is sort of reserved for people that maybe don't even need the money? Quite often. There are there are uh, quote-unquote self-made CEOs, but, you know, I mean, this is not a meritocracy. 
very few civilizations actually are. This is a society that runs on nepotism, right? So it's also not uncommon for a CEO to be kind of born on third base, to have the opportunities that allow them through, you know, personal, even familial connections to get into those executive suites. That doesn't mean they're bad people. They're rational actors. They're doing what most people would do given that opportunity. Uh, and they, yeah, they're often not sweating the light bill. Sometimes this does blow up in terms of bankruptcy and crazy unethical shenanigans. But for the most part, yeah, most part, they're pretty well off. I don't know if this is the right time to bring this up, guys, but in that same interview with with Lloyd from Goldman Sachs, uh, he was discussing the importance of keeping a CEO. So imagine for like investor confidence, the idea that you keep a CEO around for quite a while is a good thing. You've got somebody running the ship. It's your captain. That that captain is steering the ship correctly. Yeah, even if it's not fully correctly, you've got a captain and you're keeping him around, right? That's a part of, of the confidence that investors have to put money in. And that's why you want to keep paying that person more money. And you can't pay them the same amount of money year over year, and it's already such a big amount of money, that number has to go up. Uh, and it's just be, it goes up and up and up and up. And I'm sure we'll get into that more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whether it's what well, it might, it's as we see, stock options are by far one of the most popular ways to increase that compensation year over year. And it, it is true, like investors are going to look at a company differently if it's gone through five CEOs in four years. That doesn't sound predictable. Right. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for predictability of some sort. But what about the employees again? What about the people who are actually doing the stuff, right? That makes the CEO and this board of directors so much money. Employees in general have no way to question the compensation of a superior. And federal agencies are able to regulate how a CEO is compensated, right? Especially when you get into antitrust legislation, but they don't have a say in how much a company can or cannot pay their top people. And honestly, um, you know, I, I don't know if there's a hot take, but I don't think government should be able to do that. I don't think they should be able to tell a company I, I think it's fine for government to set a minimum of how much someone should be paid for a given role, but I don't think it's right to set a maximum. I think that gets that's dangerously overreaching, um, which don't mistake me for don't mistake that for me saying abolish the government or anything hyperbolic. But don't you guys think so? Like it, it would be weird, right, for Uncle Sam to say, like, hey, you can only pay CEOs a million dollars. That that feels like it's not the role of government. I almost feel like it just needs to be a consensus we all come to as maybe a planet. Nobody <laughs> needs to make more than some ridiculously high amount of money. And then, you know, if you've got more money, it does feel like maybe there should be just a, a rule we all agree upon. You reinvest that excess money in, you know, a company, in its employees, in, you know, infrastructure of the company, or, oh, I don't know, maybe fixing the planet in some way. I don't know. Look, I, maybe I'm a little, whatever you call me what you want. I, I, I think maybe there's room for that, or at least maybe there should be right on, man. I'm with you on that one. It reminds me of, um, there was this fantastic, so all great learning really occurs through analogy and experience, right? And there was this fantastic analogy that I believe was John Cleese from Monty Python made, uh, when he was talking about, um, billionaires 
And he said, okay, well, don't think of money. Think of chocolate. If you came to my house and I had like a, a little bit of a, like a candy bar or something, you would think, oh, John quite quite enjoys his chocolate, his sweets. But, and you know, I might even give you, like, say, hey, do you want some of this chocolate I'm eating? And he's like, but what if you came into my apartment and it was just filled to the ceiling with chocolate, like you could barely walk anywhere. And I didn't, I not only didn't think that was weird, but I was mad when I heard that other people had chocolate. Like that's, I think that's a, an interesting way to phrase the the idea. And, you know, this, whenever you're talking about people's money, it can get very sensitive, you know, like uh, one hot take. What if everybody had a reset? What if no matter how much money you made, it just went to taking care of the planet when you were dead and your kids all had to start on a level playing field? I mean, there's a line this reminds me of from There Will Be Blood, where uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Daniel Plainview, who's like this, like, you know, kind of robber baron, like oil tycoon. He says something about, I, I can't remember exactly the, the wording, but that he doesn't want anyone else to succeed. <laughs> like, right. that, is, that is the um, driving force in his entire life for why he does anything. Mm. And, yes. and, you know, one could argue in a free market kind of way, you know, I quote fingers there, but, but, um, that that should be your right. <laughs> you know what you I mean? You could argue that. If you, yeah. if, if you got, your, got there by sitting in a hole in the ground and, and, and finding oil or whatever, or if you're like Steve Jobs and you figured out how to make iPhones, like why shouldn't you be so great that you don't want anyone else to match your greatness? There's no philosophically nor ethically sound way to make it illegal for people to be pills. Some like you can't legislate personality and I don't think you should. Uh, it's dystopian, but yeah, it's a really good point. And then, you know, the, the other thing is that there's a dilemma because yes, it would be too much for a governmental body to say, you can only pay people so much and we're not going to allow more. It, it, it would be a weird blanket statement. Uh, and a lot of folks who have a problem with it, it's never going to happen by the way, in the foreseeable future. But without some kind of oversight, without some kind of mechanism for people to question the current arrangement, CEO pay is realistically only going to accelerate in the future while, uh, I hope this is the part that makes it a video, while real wages, that's my left hand, go down for everybody else. We're like past the X now. Uh, and we're past the, uh, oh, we haven't said this in a while. We're past the inflection point. We are well past it. <laughs> Who, Whose uh, who, who's, um, autobiography was called that? Inflection oh, points? Was that Bush? Maybe it was. Or was he decision points? Maybe he has several. Yeah, kind of George W. Deals. Bush, decision decision points. Excuse me. But, we but went, uh, we're, we're laughing, folks, because the three of us went through a phase. I, I think this was during the pandemic. I don't remember. Where I, uh, we all three realized that we were just – we had sometimes our group mind catches on to a phrase or word, like when everybody was saying liminal, I feel bad about that one. And then we had the inflection point phase, <laughs> but we're using it correctly. I think, right. I think so. Anyway, Maybe. good job. Inflection <laughs> point. You served us well. Uh, so like that's, that's the problem. CEO pay increasingly includes compensation based on stocks, based on the stock market instead of just salaries. This means their pay is direct, is directly tied to the stock market. That means a good period for the stock market overall 
can help propel CEO salaries in general upwards, kind of regardless of the performance on a day-to-day basis of a company. And that that leads to the other, the other disturbing question. What does this tell us about the wealth gap? I think we can all agree this tells us a great deal about the dangers ahead. Uh, this is where conspiracies come into play. And Noel, I love that you pointed out it's more than just CEOs. They're just an easy example because of some of the laws that have passed quite recently that give uh, the public a window into how the financial and uh, how the so- financial sausage of inequality is made. Like, think past the scandalous headlines. Oh, CEOs are overpaid. Revolution in the streets. What happens to that money after they get it? Let's say they do cash out the stock options. They're sitting pretty. It doesn't just stay in a checking account. I think very few people have actually made some Uncle Scrooge-esque like deep pool of gold coins and treasure. As a matter of fact, Years ago, several years ago, uh, we looked at the physics of that, and you will injure yourself seriously if you try to t- if you try to dive in. Don't do it. At, at best, you will break bones. Um, the money they make goes places. We have to talk about feedback loops. That is what is missing from a lot of the conversations. Uh, I was surprised to hear this from a guy named Charlie Munger, uh, CEO for a, a time, of Berkshire Hathaway. He calls them daisy chains, but we're talking about the same thing. So let's just use the phrase feedback loop. Even though Charlie said daisy chain, we're talking about the same thing. Let's say you are a powerful, powerful CEO. You're a tech tycoon. Paul Mission Control has uh, gotten out of the podcasting game. He invented the next iPhone, whatever that may be. And he says, you know, I'm doing pretty well but I'm getting tired of all these pesky politicians and these activists. I want to use the money I've already made to prevent some legislation going through, or I want to use the money I've made to grease the wheels and make sure the policies that I want to see do become law. Then boom, you're off to the races, campaign donations, super PACs, the the avenues through which you can move this influence are uh, numerous and very effective. You just put your thumb on the scale of politics, and then you are using your money to make sure that the laws enable you to make even more money in the coming years, and then you put that money back into the system. I mean, again, hashtag not all CEOs, but I would argue this is more common than a lot of people assume. Yeah, and and again, like you said, it's not just the CEOs. It's probably the, the top paid executives at a firm, and that can be between, you know, one and several dozen people who all get to kind of do that and all ensure their own continued wealth <laughs> accumulation, let's say. You know, it, it, it reminds me of, in some ways, the way corporations work and, and regulatory bodies work, where you have these regulatory bodies, like the FDA, for example, where the officials that work for that uh, body are often, I mean, I don't want to 
besmirch anybody's reputation here, but it would seem sometimes make calls that are um, beneficial to the companies that they are regulating because they know that they may one day jump ship from government work and get a cushy job with said company, uh, which is very similar to what can happen with a board uh, and a CEO. And that relationship can be tainted in a similar way. And you guys, you know, aside from those actions that can be taken by executives, there's this thing that Vox and several other outlets outline uh, in articles about this thing. And they're based on these studies that you've already mentioned, Ben, where just over those years, we go back to the 70s, there was this trend where big firms, especially top firms, would always say that they pay above average. So they're going to compensate which their CEO, the incoming new CEO with an above average salary and options, right? And Mm -hmm. every time that that occurs, it's just this ladder that gets created and it goes up and up and up. And if that's been occurring since the 1970s, you can only imagine that that's how the CEO pay has gone up just naturally because of that trend. Uh, Because you've got to get that shark that's out there, right? That star, you got to attract that person somehow. And the way you do that is by offering more than your competitors. And then the next person in line has to offer more than that. Yes. Another feedback loop. And some of these things might sound a little too extreme to happen incredibly often, but we assure you they do. Uh, We're going to pause for word from our sponsor. We'll be back with one more example. And we're also going to talk about what this means for the future. From football playoffs to basketball madness, TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at Amazon.com. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. We've returned. Okay, who chooses the CEO? If you work at any number of fast food restaurants, for example, many of whom are owned by larger corporations like Yum! Brands, it's not as if your manager is going to get you together on the floor one day before opening and saying, all right, let's vote on the CEO. That's not up to you. That's not up to most employees. That is up to the board of directors. So imagine the board of directors has elected you the CEO, chosen you, and now you make sure that one of your first moves is to increase salary and compensation across the board of directors, the same folks who hired you. And they're going to think, this person's great. They've really got their head on their shoulders. Uh, This is what Charlie Munger was explaining as well. Uh, He said they're going to keep that person as CEO and they're going to recommend more pay for that person. And that person's going to turn around and do the same feedback loops, baby. Yes, everybody's winning except, you know, the employees. Yeah, uh, because these feedback loops, um, they have real world ramifications. They can be used in ways that can, you know, rob regular employees of certain rights. They can be used to make it harder to unionize. They can be used to fight back against um, efforts to raise the minimum wage and all of that good stuff. Uh, there's an economist um, by the name of uh, Anthony Davies, um, who is a senior affiliated scholar with, I believe, the George Mason University and other uh, institutions as well. But he makes the point that this, what you're describing here, is like basically plunder versus profit. Like this is someone that is taking their influence uh, and then reinvesting it, quote unquote, in a way that takes things away from people who are powerless as opposed to being rewarded for providing services and opportunities that are for the better of all or society or whatever. This is the nasty flip side of that. Yeah, well said. And in many cases, to be clear, this is not illegal. You could call it unethical all the live long day. Any more than lobbying is very much legal. Right, right. Check out our two-part episode on lobbying and get ready to be depressed. (laughs) guys just on this topic i want to relay a quick story that i heard gosh it was from 2014 and it was mr buffett uh, warren buffett it's a story about coca-cola do you you guys know this at all he uh he owned like 400 million shares of coca-cola stock and he was in that position where he's like an investor that isn't necessarily on the board but he gets to vote in certain things because he owns so much of that stock and the compensation group or the, you know, the compensation board 
as part of the board of directors came through and put forward what they were going to pay their executives that year in 2014. And all Warren Buffett did was abstain from voting from that yes or no vote of this compensation package. And it sent ripples throughout the entire company and they ended up changing that compensation package and they reduced it by millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he made this really interesting point that I'd never thought of. His son, by the way, was on the board of Coke at the time. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, he said that almost never is a no vote put forward in those compensation talks in boards. Almost never do they say, no, we shouldn't pay our CEO and executives that much money. Uh, It's just kind of accepted. He said it's like burping at the dinner table. You just try not to do it. It's just something you don't do. Yeah, and it makes sense. It would be unusual because it might also make your company and your board look bad, right? Like they're not going to play ball with you. It may be seen as unnecessarily, as some unnecessary antagonism at the beginning of a relationship or at the inflection point of relationship. Last time, I'm sorry, but this... This, for the record, everything that Matt and Noel and I are describing is exactly why even even very experienced executives like the guy who was in charge of Berkshire Hathaway don't think directors should be paid at all. They think it should be more like being a, a member of the board of trustees at a, a college or university. And some people think that uh, folks like Charlie are right. But the big point we have to emphasize again lest you think we're unfairly dunking on CEOs. These feedback loops happen in boardrooms. Sure, they happen in the military-industrial complex, as Noel mentioned. They happen in congressional conversations. They're probably happening in the White House, regardless of which administration is in power. This is the way things are. The halves of society are clean in-house. They're cleaning up, and they're using these feedback loops Again, not always in an illegal way to consolidate wealth while the rest of the country, regardless of what they might believe, are being fleeced. And now the next logical question, if you're listening to this and you're fired up and you're thinking revolution, well, why don't workers fight back up against this? Many try, but it is candidly an uphill battle. And I read something really interesting. I bet you guys have heard this before, but I wanted to share it with you. I don't think we talked about this on air. So I found this theory that used this idea to explain the motives behind the fight to keep privatized healthcare in the U.S. Like past all the like PR, past all the you know fake uh, death panel smear campaigns. Privatized insurance, by the way, does pretty much have death panels. So it was incredibly hilarious to hear them accusing or like raising fears that a government would do what they are doing. Uh, So anyhow, the gist is like this. So if you look at polls and you can make the polls somewhat apolitical, like if people hear about the idea of uh, public health care, non-privatized health care, and they don't hear it attached to a politician – There's actually a lot of widespread support in the U.S. for a first world approach to healthcare, but private industry will fight tooth and nail against it. This is the um, this is the theory again, not necessarily what we believe. They'll fight tooth and nail against it because privatized healthcare one means a ton of people receive health insurance from their employer, which means two 
People will stay at jobs, not because they're good career choices, but because that job is often the only avenue to semi-affordable health care for themselves or their families. Like, what, what do you think about that? Is that too much of a reach? I, I don't know if it's big enough to be system-wide, but it feels like it has some disturbing sand. I mean, I think you could get into age ranges there, like why people stay at companies mm-hmm. for longer than maybe they would want to or, or even should for, for their own, you know, well-being. Um, I can totally imagine that, especially if they're, as you said, the families is the key point there, especially if you've got a loved one, a family member that does need maybe more health care support than you, even the employee need, you would make that decision to stay. As anybody who got a Cobra bill can tell you, right? You see the difference. You guys know Cobra insurance, right? You remember that? Of course. Yeah. Oh, man, that stuff is bananas, nuts and bananas. This, I think, takes us to one of our – oh, by the way, the healthcare industry in the U.S. is the largest overall employer. So there's a lot of vested interest on that end, too. Story for another day, perhaps. But Does that include point, insurance? Uh, you know what? I believe it does. I believe it includes health insurance. It would have to, right, for it to be overall the largest employer. Um, I think so. Yeah, it would have to, logically. But for the last question, what can this massive CEO compensation phenomenon tell us about the future of inequality? Whether you think it's a it's a massive resource extraction heist or whether you think these are people who are just, you know, uh, LeBron James style, Kobe style being paid what they're worth and that they're just happen to be superstars in their field. Well, this shows us the future. Any way you slice it does not look good for the ma- vast majority of people in the working world, uh, especially going back to EPI, Economic Policy Institute, which we mentioned earlier. They said, quote, increasing CEO pay is not actually linked to an increase in the value of the CEO's work. Instead, it's more likely to reflect their close ties with the corporate board members who set their pay. So how much does performance really impact what's happening here? I mean, I think that explains why these processes can explain why compensation rose even while companies were burning down in the pandemic. Well, you could argue, or I mean, certain people could argue that they kept the ship afloat and they made smart decisions. They made the hard calls that no one else could or wanted to make. Yeah. And therefore yeah. should be, you know, compensated. Because, again, I mean, when you weigh the amount of money a company of that size takes in versus how much money the CEO is getting paid, I mean, it's it's not that out of whack, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, <sighs> You know, yeah. not, I'm sorry. I'm being facetious, but I mean, I'm not entirely, not entirely. I mean, if a company is like a multi-billion-dollar company, and the CEO is taking home twenty million dollars, and you know, one could credit the success of that company, you know, also the failure to that CEO. Is it really that out of line for that CEO to take home twenty-five million dollars, especially if they kept a company afloat during really difficult times while other companies were like failing? I don't want to say some of the things that I'm thinking, you guys, but it gets back to some of these concepts that we've spoken about that are just part of the nature of capitalism. And again, I think it's the best system that we've got. I just know there are some serious flaws. Um, But you think about the potential trajectory for any company that you could be a CEO of, especially if it's privatized, right? It it can grow and grow until the point where it's probably going to go public or it's going to get ingested into another probably bigger 
public company or it could go bust. Those are like pretty much the three trajectories that you can have, like that you could steer your ship towards. Um, and when you think about it that way, I don't know, you, if you get the helm, then you really just have to steer until you meet one of those ends. And if you are like at the top and the company fails, you're going to get a parachute essentially, as we've kind of noted, (laughs) if it, you know, if not, you're going to like, make a ton of money. I don't know, guys, we should, we should all just quit what we're doing and like do everything we can to become a CEO. (laughs) You know, I was thinking about that, but I think I'm more down to be a consultant. I like the idea because a consultant is your cameo friend, you know, and I'm a very good cameo friend in society. I drop by once a season in someone's life. We have a great time and then I'll see them, you know, next year or whatever. Uh, I like, I like the idea of being, I can, maybe we can just be, start off as a CEO consultancy. Ben, do you remember Silicon Valley? There, oh, yeah, yeah. The show Silicon Valley on HBO? Mm-hmm. There's, the, there's the character who's like the religious guru that follows um, the, the main guy around, the main CEO. Uh, I could totally see you being that guy, the, the advisor in the back. Ah, uh, shucks. Thanks, man. <laughs> like um, like whis- whispering stuff. <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that would... Uh, if we could all do something like that, maybe we would be able to afford rent in San Francisco. Kidding. (gasps) (laughs) Kidding. We're podcasters. But, uh, but there's, there is some troubling stuff from Pew research about what this means. Um, You know, like we said, it's bigger than the CEOs. Income growth will continue to increase at, at a breakneck pace for those at the top of modern society. We don't have to get too much into the details, but just know that what you would call upper income families were the only tier, financial tier in society that were able to build on their wealth from 2001 to 2016. And then back in 1983, upper income families had 3.4 times as much wealth as the middle class. And the middle class is quickly becoming the stuff of legend and myth. Check out our episode on that. Uh, But by 2016, that number more than doubled. Now those same families have 7.4 times as much wealth as your average John and Jane, uh, et cetera, American. Another thing that that economist I cited earlier, Anthony Davis, pointed out is that poverty and wealth inequality are not the same thing. And I, I do kind of see his point there. Um, the he, he argues that the middle class is disappearing, but that it's being subsumed into the upper class and that overall, like, people are, you know, doing better than in years past. What do you think about that? Well, that is, that is certainly an interesting and opinionated argument for me. Um, I, would, I would respond by saying that the middle class, yeah, part of it is being subsumed into the upper class, but a great deal of it is also being subsumed into what you would call the lower or the working class. Uh, one of the problems with that is arriving at a definition of middle class. Like we said in our previous episode, the vast majority of people in the U.S. describe themselves as middle class, including like low-level millionaires and including people that statistically and for all other purposes are considered lower class. That's kind of always been the issue, though, hadn't it? Like the idea of what the middle class is and defining it and sort of depends on who's talking, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, just so. And this, like the, so these questions are still up for debate, but we know that something big is happening. We know it's continuing to happen and people aren't sure what the fallout is going to be. Uh, we said we could wrap today's episode up with one simple final answer. Don't know if it's the answer everybody wants, but why do CEOs make so much money? It's because they can. And unless things change in a big way, that's going to be continue to be the case. Whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, that is your perspective. But that is, this is what's going to happen. And there are strong arguments back and forth. Uh, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear what our what our fellow listeners think. I I honestly, Ben, I agree with you there with the answer. I think there's a little thing on the side there that's also it's because we kind of decided that they should get paid a ton of money. And when I say we, I don't mean, you know, us in this room right now, this virtual room and and you listening, but like as a society, as a, you know, as a whole, we decided that the people who run these giant companies that provide a lot of jobs for people that make investors a ton of money should get paid a lot. It's just, I think that number has been going up and up and up and up and up and up and up because of what we described in this episode. But isn't that oftentimes we, we don't vote like, you know, we vote for elected office, but we kind of vote with our dollar, right? Like by where we're funneling our disposable income or indisposable income, you know what I mean? Like depending on who you are. I mean, that, that economist that I, I keep saying, I'm only doing this as a devil's advocate thing. I, I, I'm on the fence as well. I just think he makes some interesting points and he's clearly a you know smart guy. Um, he's not entirely biased, but he made the point of like, if you're in a room, poll the audience and ask how many people have $50,000 in their bank account, you probably won't get that many hands raised. But if you ask how many people have iPhones, you'll probably get like, you know, almost everybody raising their hand. So you could argue that like it's an exchange, you know, they've chosen to exchange their money for those goods and and are rewarding the CEO who was responsible for making that technology available to the culture and to like the masses. It's a, I mean, I wholeheartedly disagree with that. But that's my again, that's just my opinion. I myself am not an economist. Um, I I think it's. I don't know if I wholeheartedly disagree, but it it's misleading. Um, I think so. I think that's a greater good right. argument. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think it it can be misleading, and it's it's also one single scenario. You know, it's like um, you need more context. You need a larger sample size than a room full of people, and 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 people being into tech. It's just in that in that video that you're referencing there, Noel. He gives the example of the computer. And how the first computer was a million dollars and it was giant and unwieldy. Unless enough very wealthy corporations and individuals bought those computers, then we wouldn't have the innovations that caused that computer to be affordable to everybody. But it, I, I, as Ben says, it's not a complete argument. Because people with money invested in a thing doesn't mean the innovation occurred necessarily. It was a, it's a part of it, though. Well, yeah, yeah there's an argument for economy of scale. In response, then, and, and with a great deal of respect, I would, uh, I would question, I would ask that economist to use this framework to explain price gouging on insulin, which, according to his, his example, Shouldn't be something that happens, right? Uh, why did the average price of insulin rise to four hundred and fifty dollars per month in twenty six by twenty sixteen? 
But that would be considered plunder versus profit. I mean, it, it, again, it's a gray area. Like, where does one start and the other begin? You know, um, I, I think these are all really valid points, and it's not one-to-one. And it is an interesting gray area as to, like, the morals of it all, you know? Mm-hmm. And so now, to sum it up, why do CEOs make so much money? Again, because they can <laughs> they sure can, and they sure do. Yeah, and and uh, whether or not you feel that is a good or bad thing, it is uh, that that depends upon your own personal, dare I say, philosophical framework, right? On how the world should be and how people should be able to live within it. Uh, with that in mind, we would love to hear your thoughts. What what do you think? Are CEOs unnecessarily vilified? Is acceleration of wealth inequality a very bad thing? a very good thing, or just a thing that people are putting values upon. Because as you said, you know, the like the um, standard of living has risen for a lot of people over time. Uh, so what what do you make of it? As, as uh, they would say in, as some of our Australian friends would say, what do you reckon? We want to hear from you. We try to be easy to find online. Yep, we sure do. You can find us under the handle Conspiracy Stuff on Facebook, where we have a Facebook group called Here's Where It Gets Crazy, um, and on Twitter, and also on YouTube, where we have video clips coming out every single week. Uh, if you want to find us on Instagram, you can check us out under the handle at Conspiracy Stuff Show. Hey, are you listening to this on a device? Maybe on your laptop. Is it Apple Podcasts? Really? It is? Is it Spotify? What is it? <laughs> I'm just I'm not really asking you the question. If you're listening to this and you have the time, we ask that you please review the show. Just review it. Uh, say a little something in there. Be funny. Whatever you want to do. Just review it. It really, really helps us, especially if you give it a good one. But I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just saying it would be cool if you did. Oh, anyway. Hey, you know, what you can also do you can give us a phone call. That's right. Uh, all you have to do is pick up your device of choice and drop us a line. Say it with me. one 833 Three minutes. You'll hear a message telling you you're in the right place. And then those three minutes are entirely yours. Go wild. Get weird with it. Give yourself a cool nickname. Let us know what's on your mind. Uh, second most important thing to do in that call is uh, tell us if it's okay to use your name and voice on the air. And the most important thing to remember is not to censor yourself. If you have a if you have a story that needs more than three minutes, then don't feel like oh, I got to call five times. All you have to do is write us an email. Write it out in full. We love emails. We read every single one we get. It also gives you the ability to throw in some links, throw in some pictures, and then boom, we're on the case. We'll dive into those rabbit holes. All you have to do is uh, shoot us a line over at our address where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. 
Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.